Um, if you have your Bibles as they're dismissed, you can turn over to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Now I know this is a uh, very, very popular chapter and there's probably, you've probably heard it preached a hundred times and probably heard that many different interpretations from it. But I read it this past week on Monday And something resonated with me and I read it again on Tuesday and Wednesday. And when I read it on Thursday, I just texted Faith. And I just said, tears are rolling down my cheek from reading Genesis 3. Because God showed me something there that I'd never seen before. At least never seen it in that light. So I'm not going to take forever to preach. I'm just going to preach the word, but I'm not going to take forever. The food will wait. They're keeping it warm, I promise. (laughs) But before you can eat physical food, you need to eat spiritual food. Amen? Alright, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her offspring and your offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Because the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's a lot. 
there's a lot of things that I could point out, and I want to point out a couple things before I get to the main point of the message. My wife did this on Wednesday. If you guys heard her preach, she did a fantastic job, didn't she? Amen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> before she got to the main point of her message, she had like a bunch of bullet points running through the Beatitudes, and she was pretty, and she did an amazing job. I'm not as pretty, so I probably won't do as amazing of a job. But I wanted to point out a couple of things in this message that each one could be their own sermon in of themselves, but I just wanted to point, I want to point them out. The first thing that I want to point out is the serpent. The serpent did not attack Eve's relationship with God directly. The serpent attacked Eve's relationship with God indirectly. He attacked Eve's relationship with Adam directly. You might even say he attacked a woman's relationship with her husband, or you could go even further and spiritualize it and say he attacked one believer's relationship with another, and by interfering in their relationship, he attacked their relationship with God. That's his tactic today. He gets the church divided against itself, and then as such, the church's relationship with God is hindered because of his tactics. And I'm not reading this into the text. If you read the flow and you start at Genesis 1 and you just follow the progression, God told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before Eve was ever created. Eve wasn't even made yet. And then Satan comes along and he asks Eve a question. He said, did God actually say this? And if God would have appeared to her and said, don't eat of this tree, then she would have been like, yeah, I was standing over next to the pomegranates. God appeared to me, told me not to eat of the tree. Why are you asking such a dumb question? But she had heard it from Adam. Adam had reiterated the command because that was his responsibility as keeper of the garden. So Satan was putting doubt between one believer and another. And as such, he was affecting their relationship with God. You think that because somebody does something, and Satan puts it in their heart, or he uses them to affect you, or to hurt you, or to offend you. You think that it's just your relationship with them that's hindered, but as such, your relationship with God is actually being hindered. Next, I want to talk to you about the flow of sin. See, sin doesn't start with sin. Sin starts with a question, and then that question leads to a doubt, and then we buy into that doubt, and it becomes a lie. And then that lie produces a desire, and then that desire leads to an action, which is sin. But it all starts because we find ourselves outside the presence of God to begin with. Eve wasn't in the immediate presence of God, and the question came. Sometimes because we don't stay in the presence of God like we're supposed to, questions come. And then we linger on those questions, and they become doubts. And then we buy into those doubts, and they become outright lies. And then those outright lies produce desire in our heart. And then we finally act on the desire, and it's sin. James picks up on this when he says, you know, lust, when it has conceived, bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There's a progression to sin. It may take five seconds or 15 years. Most people that end up committing things like adultery, they don't just jump into adultery. They let a question develop, and then they buy into a doubt, and then they buy into an outright lie, and then that produces a desire, and then they act on the desire. Sometimes it takes five days, sometimes it takes 15 years, who knows? What I'm saying is, is there's always a progression to sin. C.S. Lewis used to say that Satan, if he can get a toehold, he'll get a foothold. If he can get a foothold, he'll get a stranglehold. And if he can get a stranglehold, he'll get a stronghold. And that's the progression of sin. And you see that played out here in the garden. The next thing that I want to talk about is I want to mention Eve, why she ate the fruit. Listen, it wasn't just Satan's temptation. She looked at it and it was good for food. It was 
pleasant to the eyes, and it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. Three things. The Apostle John, in the se- his second chapter of his first epistle, 1 John 2.16, I believe, he says this, he says, All that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. There were three temptations, one for the spirit, one for the body, and one for the soul. And Eve was hit in all of those points. But you know what's beautiful about this? is that when Jesus Christ, after he was baptized, when he was taken out in the wilderness by the Spirit and Satan came to tempt him, he tempted him in how many ways? Three. First thing he did was he said, hey, um, I know you've been fasting for 40 days. Why don't you take those rocks and turn them to bread? Because you've got to be hungry. Lust of the flesh. Then he said, hey, why don't you throw yourself off this precipice? Because God said that if you're really the Messiah that he's given his angels charge over you and they'll catch you up and you won't even hit your foot against a stone. I mean, and it would have appealed to Jesus the temptation of pride. Like, I am who I am. Like, I know who I am. I know who God's called me to be. Now i got to prove it. How many times has someone questioned your calling, your identity, and you feel like you've got to step up and prove it? Like, you want to question? I, I have one. And this is a bad one of mine. But I love it when I when people get into, like, theological conversations or biblical conversations especially when they're older than me and they write you off because of your age or maybe because you don't have a degree beside your name and then you got to step up and kind of you don't really have to but you feel like you do you feel that desire to step up and see like let me just prove to you who i am and what i know and what god has called me to you have that desire like I and it runs rampant in men. I know that there's there's aspects in women, too, but it runs rampant in men. I've got to step up and prove that I am a man, that I am the head of this house, that I am, you know, never mind. I'll just move on. But there's this there's <laughs> there's this temptation, this pride of life. You've got to step up and show who you are. And that was what Satan was appealed to. The soul, this this aspect of I've got to step up and prove who I am. And then the third one was he shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world. And he says, bow down and worship me. He shows it to him. Lust of the eyes. He, he sees all these kingdoms of the world and he says, bow down and worship me and this is yours. You can have all that you see. And he's the God of this world so it was within his power to give it to him. Part of me believes that that's how Hitler came to power, but I digress. So Jesus walks in the garden or walks into the wilderness, the habitation of devils, and is tempted by Satan himself in three areas. The same three areas that Eve was tempted in, except instead of eating of the fruit, he answered with the word. He said it's written that man shouldn't live by bread alone, but by every word that cometh from the mouth of God. He said it's also written, Satan, that you shouldn't tempt the Lord your God. And he said, it's also written, Satan, that you shall worship the Lord God alone and him only shall you serve. He answers all of the three temptations with the word of God and he passes the test. That's why when Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted, or it says, uh, we have a high priest who cannot be tempted, touched with the, we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in every point tempted as we are yet without sin. It shows us that he was tempted in the root way of every way that we're tempted. I don't think Jesus was tempted with cocaine. 
But I do think that he was tempted in his body. He was tempted in his soul and he was tempted in his spirit. And he conquered all three of those tests and passed perfectly sinless. And that's why he was able to go to the cross and to pay the penalty for us. What we're celebrating this week, Passion Week, that's why he was able to do what he was able to do is because he had already conquered the test and proven himself to be a spotless sacrifice without blemish. See, even here in Genesis 3, we talk about Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And we talk about Jesus entering into Jerusalem for Passion week and that's a wonderful thing but that's not the first time that jesus entered into the equation he entered in on the mind of god in eternity's past the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world but he also entered in in genesis chapter 3 you have what's called the proto-evangelium or the first gospel the first portrayal and messianic prophecy of jesus is found in genesis chapter 3 but what's even more is god didn't just leave it to a prophecy he set up a pattern the three types and the three ways that Eve was tempted was written out by Moses. Why, like 1,200 years, 11, 1,200 years before the coming of Jesus Christ, God spoke to Moses and told him to write this down. These three reasons are why Eve was tempted. Because he wanted it clear that when Jesus came, then he told the apostles, these three tests Satan gave to Jesus. And then he told John when he was writing his first epistle, he said, these three things are the things that exist in the world. He was setting up a pattern so that Jesus would come and he would show that he is the fulfillment and the propitiation for our sin. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He wasn't just messianic prophecy. He was also setting up a pattern. And then he was setting up an anti-type. Satan came to deceive and question God's word as an anti-type. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of God's word. Adam, the first Adam, was deceived and sinned openly. And Jesus came and answered that deception with the word of God and conquered and paid the way for us to come into covenant with him. So he was setting up prophecy. He was setting up pattern and he was setting up types and anti-types of what he was going to do. But that's not the only way that Jesus came in. See, God comes in the cool of the day. This is what's called a theophany or a manifestation of God. But I want to tell you that every manifestation of God in the Old Testament is in fact a Christophany or a manifestation of Christ. Because God is spirit. God the Father is spirit. God the Holy Spirit is spirit. And Colossians 2 says that Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the bodily representation of the triune God. This doesn't um, confuse the three persons. There are three separate persons, three separate subsistences, however technical you want to go. But there is one God existing in three persons. And the, ma the bodily representation of the triune God is Jesus Christ. This is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ walking in the garden. And it's important that you get that. It's important that you get that because here God comes in the cool of the day and the context of the passage would lead me to believe that this was a scheduled appointment. This was a standing appointment between him and Adam because if it wasn't, God wouldn't be asking where he was at. So God met Adam and Eve and they walked together through the garden in the cool of the day. It was a standing appointment. Don't you love the fact that even in your weakness, God doesn't change his schedule? Come on, if I could pray, if you could, can't praise him over that. God is cool, calm, and collected. And even when we mess up royally, and when we, what's a good expression that's not going to make me look bad? <laughs> when we really mess things up, God still keeps his schedule. 
He doesn't alter his plans or change his program or his desire because we happen to fall. You know what's so mind-boggling about this? As God is omniscient, he's all-knowing. So every time that he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, he knew the day would come where he would show up and they wouldn't. Adam and Eve violate the appointment, not God. Adam and Eve, because of their fear and because of their shame, violate the appointment, not God. They had sinned and they had fallen short and they realized that they were naked. See, sin brings about this toxic shame. And you look and you think that there's things about yourself that you can't share with other people. You think that, and I'm not just talking about clothes. I'm talking about what is underlying underneath the need for clothes and to dress a certain way is this shame. There's things about me that I can't tell other people, that I can't share with other people. Because if they really knew who I was, they wouldn't accept me. So I have to create this barrier between me and them and this barrier between me and God because no one would love me if they knew who I really was. That's what sin does. It produces toxic shame. But toxic shame doesn't exist individually it bleeds over into a corporate identity because it wasn't just adam that covered himself but then eve covered herself and then what did they do they fled from the presence of god corporately collectively they hid from the presence of god which i've already told you is actually christ so they hid from the presence of jesus christ in the garden because their sin had produced a toxic shame which had produced a fear which had got a chokehold on them and what's worse is they used the trees in the garden to hide from god the very thing that he had given them for their enjoyment and their pleasure they now used as a barrier between them and god God has given us things in this world for us to enjoy and for us to participate in. And sometimes we use that as a barrier to keep ourselves separate from God. And that's what they had done in the garden. The very thing that was meant for their enjoyment, they used it as a barrier between them and God. If I just keep myself busy, I don't have to think about God. If I can just keep myself going, I don't have to stop and allow conviction to set in. I don't have to think about the memories of things that I've done and mistakes that I've made. If I can just keep going, if I can just keep pressing, and if I can stay occupied, I don't have to think about my mistakes and my failures. The very thing that God had created for their enjoyment, they had now began to use as a barrier to try to keep themselves from being accountable to a God who loves them and desires fellowship and intimacy with them. And we get to the, the crux of this. I'm, I'm working, guys. I'm working. Get to the crux of this, the, the actual messianic prophecy that, that God lays out. He lo- looks at the woman, looks at the serpent, And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know what what's mind boggling about this is he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and his offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, not he will bruise your offspring. He will bruise you and you will bruise him, but he's not going to bruise your offspring. And you're not going to bruise the woman. So the woman and the serpent's offspring are kind of taken out of the equation. And the woman's offspring, the seed of the woman, which is Jesus, because women don't have a seed, except in Mary when you have the immaculate conception and all of that wonderful stuff happen. But what I'm talking about is the offspring of Satan and the woman are taken out of the equation and it becomes an enmity between Satan and the offspring or the seed of the woman. Does that make sense? Those two are taken out of the equation. 
And so I asked myself, what is the seed of the serpent? And over in John 8, over in John 8, you don't have to turn there, but over in John 8, Jesus is dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says, basically they say, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. We're of our father Abraham. And Jesus says, okay, if you're of your father Abraham, Abraham would have believed in me. So why don't you do the works like Abraham does? He says, because if you're children of Abraham, then why don't you act like Abraham? And so then they kind of get like offended and they're like, okay, well, maybe Abraham's not good enough. But we are ethnic Israel and we're the children of God. So Abraham's not really our father. God's our father. What do you guys say about that, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, if God was your father, then you would love me and you would know that I'm from God. So if Abraham's your father, why aren't you doing the works and believing? You know, he's the father of faith. Why aren't you having faith and doing the works that Abraham does? If God's your father, why aren't you loving? If God is love, then God's your father, then you should be operating out of love, not trying to kill me. And you would also recognize the voice of God coming through me. And he says, no, 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 no. You're of your father, the devil. See, God, uh, Jesus tells us what, who the offspring of the serpent is. You, could, you can trace this a whole bunch of different ways, but Jesus right here tells us straightforward who the offspring of the devil is. It's the people that have gotten so wrapped up in their own sin and their own shame and their own fear that they refuse to identify Jesus Christ and they're willing to accept and believe just about anything as long as it's not Jesus. And then they set themselves in opposition. But Jesus isn't trying to bruise them. Jesus doesn't go to the cross to step on their head. Jesus goes to the cross for them. He goes to the cross to step on the serpent's head. And so you see all this played out. All all of this played out. But then you, you get to this part, and I want I want to share with you the part that absolutely breaks my heart. I've never read this in this way before, but Thursday when I went to read this passage, I was reading down through, and God comes into the garden in the cool of the day, and he says, Where are you? I've already told you, God's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knew where Adam and Eve were at. This wasn't that God can't look on sin so he didn't see him, poppycock. Even if he didn't, couldn't see him because he wouldn't look on sin, he knew where they were at. He knew what was going to happen before it happened. No, this is God asking Adam and Eve a rhetorical question. Where are you? Because if they were where they were supposed to be, the question wouldn't, would be moot point. It would be null and void. No, there was an issue. They weren't where they were supposed to be. So God comes to the garden and he says, where are you? And I feel like that God is asking this question of people constantly in the church. He comes in and he says, where are you at? You're supposed to be in my presence. You're supposed to be in intimate relationship with me. And you're not. Where are you at, church? Where are you at? You're supposed to be with me. I created you for my glory. I created you to worship me. I created you to have a relationship with me. And here you are not with me. You're using the very things in creation and you're treating them like your gods and you're making idols out of everything and you're not with me. Where are you at, church? There are people probably in this room. I know a lot. many of you are devout believers, but there's probably people in this room that aren't walking in the presence of God like you could. They ran from the presence of Jesus Christ and he comes in the garden and he says, where are, you? where are you? Where are you? Why have you hidden yourself? Why did you run from me? 
Adam answers, he said, we heard the sound of you and we were afraid. They didn't see God. They didn't experience God. They just heard the sound and they formed an assumption based out of their toxic sin and shame and fear and they fled. I'm not talking about consequences. Okay, there's, there's two, two types of consequences. There's necessary consequences for their actions and for their violation of the covenant with God. Yes, and we'll get to that. And there's also consequences from the choice of following the serpent, which is sin and fear and toxic shame and becoming a proponent of that toxic shame, which is why the Pharisees were called the son of the, the offspring of the devil is because they became proponents of toxic shame. It doesn't ever exist individually. It becomes corporate and you convey that to other people. You could become the very thing that deceived you in the first place. I'm not talking about consequences. I'm talking about this simple fact that their sin and their shame and their fear had driven them from the presence of God. Because they no longer trusted that God's ways were the best ways and that God's plan was perfect and that in Him they had hope. They no longer trusted that. So He comes asking, where are you at? Where are you? You're supposed to be with me. And you're not. Can, can you not hear that? Can you not hear the emotional weight of that statement? Listen, theologians will talk all the time and they'll talk about the impassibility of God and say that God doesn't feel emotions the way that they do. And then they'll try to justify it and say that they use this like anthropomorphic language. There's a million dollar word for you. It's in the image of man. Language in, our, in the image of man, in the form of man. They'll try to say that we're, they're using this language and stapling it on so that we can kind of understand what God's meaning. And do you know what I say to all of that? Bullcrap. Bullcrap. Poppycock hogwash, I don't know, any of that. You cannot read this Bible and tell me that God doesn't have emotion and He's full of it. If you want to talk about the impassibility of God, then you're going to talk about God having emotions that are perfectly in tune with His nature and His character. The problem with our emotions is that they're not in tune with us and that we get mad and act like somebody else entirely or we get sad and push away the people that we love or whatever. Our emotions begin to control and dictate us. God's does not. It flows perfectly in tune with who He is. But you can hear, if you listen closely in the Spirit, you can hear the emotion coming from this of where are you at, church? Why are you not with me? Why have you not just hidden from me, but used my creation to do so, and now are bringing other people with you? Jesus' biggest problem with the Pharisees when He cleansed the temple was that they had created an obstacle preventing other people from coming. Now it wasn't just that they weren't coming into His presence, but they were preventing other people from coming into His presence too. And that's what we do. Because if we're not in the light, we can't bring someone into the light. If we're not in God's presence, we can't lead someone into God's presence. If we're not walking in fellowship with God, we can't tell someone else how to. And so we've become blind leading the blind. He says, where are you? You're supposed to be with me, and you're not. Where are you at? And after Adam responds to him, I love the next words of God. He says, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that? Because the implication behind there is, we hid from you because we were naked and we were afraid. The implication is, is that because they knew that they were naked, they now thought of themselves as not good enough to be in God's presence. And church, this is what many of you do. I've done this. You make a mistake and then you think, I'm not worthy to go to God in prayer right now. 
You make a mistake and you think, I'm not worthy or I'm not good enough and God can't accept me right now. I don't have the ability to preach the gospel. The thoughts that went through my head last night, should I stand up here and preach the gospel? I'm using this as an example. No bad thoughts went through my head. Just clarifying. But I'm just, I'm just saying, like that's what we do. Somebody will make a mistake and then they'll think, now I'm disqualified. I can't stand and face those church people. I'll be a hypocrite. And I love it when people tell me, they say, I don't want to go to church because it's full of hypocrites. And I have the same answer for them every single time. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. And you know what? If you go, there'll be one more in the mix. (laughs) We all know that we're not perfect. We're just trying to do the best we can and serve God with everything that we have. And if that makes us look like actors then so be it. Call me an actor. Because I know with a conflict that is in me, the lust of the flesh warring with the power of the Spirit, and me trying to submit and follow the Spirit and the flesh pulling me down. I understand there's that struggle and that battle. You want to call me fake and call me an actor? Call me whatever you want. Because when glory's there, God's going to tell me, well done, good and faithful servant. Come on in. And He's probably going to look at you that's calling me an actor and say, did I know you? Maybe shouldn't go that far. But it's true. He says, who lied to you? Who told you that? Who told you that you were naked? And we've got a lot of people up here in the pulpit standing, acting like that they are superhuman, that they are Nietzsche's ubermensch, that they're the perfect person, and that they have it all together. Let me tell you something. Mike, how long have you been preaching? You got it all together? 26 years of ministry still doesn't have it all together. I've got 12, not even close. Some of you have been Christians for twice as long as I've been alive. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Hope you didn't put nothing in the sweet potato casserole. That's all I got to (laughs) say. but you still don't have it all together. And in an honest reflection, in a few minutes, you'd admit it. You ain't got it all together. But you know what? People will stand up here and they'll act like they've got it all together and that they're perfectly in tune with God and that they don't ever do anything wrong and that every word is like Samuel's and it doesn't fall to the ground and they'll act like they're some holy individual. And I I don't know. I could go on. And then they make the congregation feel like they're nothing. Because they, they portray something impossible to attain. They portray something that you're not going to attain. And then you look at them and you're like, why even try? If they are who they say they are, which they're not, why even try? Why even try? See, that's the thing about toxic shame. You want to cover up your weaknesses, you want to cover up the parts that you may not think other people want to see. But if you bring it to the light and you take those metaphorical fig leaves off, then guess what? There can be some reproof and some healing and some growth and then you're out of a culture of toxicity and you're into a culture of vulnerability. It's like, whoa, wait a second. Vulnerability is a two-way street. And in order to create a culture of vulnerability, you have to be vulnerable and willing to admit your failures and your mistakes. But I'm going to tell you something. The power of God won't show up otherwise. 
Lots of other powers can show up. Lots of other things can dance and party and have a good time, but only in a culture of vulnerability will you really have the power of God show up. And you know what Jesus says? He says that that is the final apologetic. When you actually love one another, they will know that I am God and He has sent me. That's the final apologetic, is love and community, which Dietrich Bonhoeffer says is the gift of God. But it has to have transparency and vulnerability. And it scares us to death because we realize that if people see us for who we are, that the masquerade is torn off. And then it's, okay, God, now I really have to trust you. And not only do I have to trust you, but I have to start trusting them. Because are they going to air my dirty laundry? Air mine, I don't care. I'm serious. Because as long as people think of me or any other preacher that stands up here as being perfect, they won't stand up here. And in order to make disciples, you have to reproduce what God has developed in you. And you can't do that by pretending to be something that you're not. Hmm. So he says, where are you at? Who, who told you that you were naked? Did you do the thing that I told you not to do and eat of the fruit? Did you choose something over me? And the answer is obviously yes. And then you get into all of the, the judgments and the repercussions of their actions. The repercussions of their actions. Not God's choice, but God's consequence for their actions, which if you follow that through, sets up a pattern for Jesus Christ to fulfill. And it's beautiful. And if you get to the crux and the core of everything and you break it all the way down to the end, God sets up one final demonstration of how he's going to answer this because God is not going to let sin stand. He's not going to let toxic shame stand. He's not going to let fear stand. He is going to have the last word. And after all of this judgment, God removes their metaphorical fig leaves, the barriers that they've created, and he slays an animal. See, the first blood sacrifice was by God's hand. He slays an animal. And if you follow the language, it's probably a lamb. And then he uses its skin to cover them. Blood and a covering, which is another picture and portrait of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.27, one of my favorite scriptures says, as many as in Christ have put on Christ. And so God removes their metaphorical fig leaves, the creation, their twisted use of creation to create barriers between themselves and between them and God. And he removes that and he replaces it with Jesus Christ. Which is the perfect picture of unity, the perfect picture of love, and the perfect picture of transparency. Amen? So here's what I want. I'll just take about two or three minutes but I want everybody in here to just close your eyes. Just close your eyes. And I want, you guys can put something fancy on, I don't care. And then I want you to, you to listen very, very carefully to me. Are you walking with God at your scheduled appointment? Are you walking with God in your scheduled appointment in the garden, in the cool of the day? Are you walking with Him and abiding in His presence? And is that the way you live your life? If so, fantastic.
But if you're not and you're using things of this world, God's creation or twisted perversions of God's creation like the fig leaves to hide yourself from God and He's calling to you asking where you're at, if that's you, I want you to raise your hand. If, you're, if God is calling to you because you're not in His presence and you're not walking in His presence, I want you to raise your hand. Praise God. Praise God. So I'm going to take that as everybody in here is walking with God and is keeping your appointment. You can open your eyes. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray over the culture of this church. And we're going to pray for a culture of transparency. A confessional culture. A culture where we don't hide our mistakes and we don't put on masks or fig leaves, but that we're open and honest with one another in love because that's how we're going to see the power of God flow in this congregation. That's how we're going to do life together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just come before You and I ask humbly and simply, Lord, that You would move in this congregation, that Your Spirit would sweep over us, and that You would stir up in each one of us a desire to see a culture of genuine love and vulnerability and power manifested in this place. That we would love each other the way that You have loved us. That Satan wouldn't be able to come in between us and as a byproduct affect our relationship with You. Know that we would be so closely united that Satan and the rest of the world would know that we stand as an apologetic or a proof that You are God and that You sit on the throne because of the way we love one another. Let that culture reign supreme in this house and in this body. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, guys.